Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. It's an honor to have Dr. Dean Sherzai and Dr. Aisha Sherzai back in this podcast. They're directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center and the authors of a new book I'm pretty excited about called The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, the definitive food and lifestyle guide to preventing cognitive decline. They are true thought leaders in how to prevent neurodegenerative diseases with lifestyle changes, and we're going to dive into all things brain health today. Welcome, one of my all-time favorite husband and wife duos. You're back with another fantastic book, 30 Day Alzheimer's Solutions. It's so great to see you. Welcome. It's so wonderful to see you too, Jason. I was actually looking back at our pictures together from 2018. I was like, wow, has it really been <laughs> like almost three years since we yeah. saw, saw yeah. last each other? Yeah. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for having the us. The world has changed a little bit yeah. since then. Just a little bit since <laughs> you guys graced the stage of our Revitalize event where we used to gather with an amazing, influential, inspirational leaders of the wellness world <laughs> for a weekend of... of content and indelible experience. We'll get back there someday. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back, you know, it, look, it's, it's February 21. We're recording this. Can you just talk about the state of, there's some sobering statistics, but I think it's important to set the stage for this conversation, the state of declining brain function where we are in the U.S., there are some crazy numbers you guys first talked about three years ago. So how about a little refresher? Where are we today? The statistics I'll give and then what we'll give our own personal experience because we do deal with this at the clinic level and at the community level. We're, we actually work in the communities as well. In fact, we run the largest brain health initiative in the country in beach cities and others uh, that we're starting in African-American churches throughout the country, hopefully, and then in Arizona and other places. So we really believe that being in the community is much more effective than just in the clinic. But the statistics are just harrowing. I mean, we're talking about 700,000 strokes, but that talks about what happens when they get to the hospital. Per I'll year. Get, I'll, yeah, I'll, uh, per year. And I'll, I'll tell you what actually, that's actually tip of the iceberg. Then we're talking about 6 million cases of Alzheimer's a patient being diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's every 64 seconds, and that's an understatement. And the numbers are even worse when you talk about cost. $600 billion for stroke and Alzheimer's combined. That's $600 billion per year. That will collapse any healthcare system in the country, and we're still focusing on drug level. I'm not against drugs. First and foremost, we're not one of those people that throws the baby out with the bathwater. We're scientists, we, we, we think that what's coming out of the science world is important, but we're missing an entire universe of healthcare, which is in your homes, your communities, uh, which is in your heart. That's what needs to be focused on. Now, what I was talking about before was, the numbers I gave you are bad enough, but they, nobody ever records cognitive decline, which starts earlier, which we have complete control over. And cognitive decline is rampant. We're, Aisha and I were both neurologists and behaviorists, and we're not too much fun at parties because you kind of recognize the signs of decline with slowness in talking. This, it's universal now, and it's because of our lifestyles. And some of the things that affect that would be surprising. Everybody's focusing on processed food and kale. No, it's way more than that. And, it, and we have to look at it that way. 
So I am curious about the signs of cognitive decline, but before I go there, I remember from Revitalize back in 18, we started the conversation and I said something along the lines of who, who would be happy if they lived to age 80? Every, most hands go up. And then there was a pretty bad statistic around achieving that age of 80 and your chances of, of getting dementia. Do those numbers still, I'll, I'll defer to you on the numbers, but does that still hold up? Could you ref- do a refresher on the statistics um, for our audience? Sure. Sure, of course. So one in 10 individuals over the age of 65 is diagnosed with uh, dementia. And I think it's important for us to differentiate between dementia and Alzheimer's. So dementia is the umbrella category. It's the bigger category and Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And there are multiple different types. Vascular dementia, which happens because of unmanaged blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, damage to the blood vessels. We have Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia, but generally speaking, Alzheimer's is a major type of dementia. So one in 10 individuals over the, 60, over the age of 65 has it. And then when we age and people who are above the age of 85, almost 50% of them have dementia. And so, so there is a very rapid incline in those numbers. And uh, like Dean said, it's not a point where you say, that's just when dementia actually happens. Or for example, when people start having some memory problems and they completely ignore it, but when they lose their license or when they can't really do their activities of daily living anymore, that's when the dementia diagnosis comes to the front. But cognitive decline is something that happens slowly and gradually, starting probably in our 30s and in our 40s. And it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of of a state of cognition that continues to get worse and worse and worse. And there's a lot we can do about it. So that is an insane incline between 10% to 50% over the course of 20 years is insane. But, you know, uh, we're all about taking uh, proactive measures today and, and knowing our audience has various age range. Well, what I would love to know if we go through the buckets like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, what are the things in each age range, or maybe they're consistent across all ages, that are consistent with cognitive decline that people should be on the lookout for, that maybe they should uh, mm-hmm. take a little bit more precaution? Although we all get affected pretty much similarly, but we see different things because the signal is clearer at certain age. So one of the most common things we hear, what is it? Attention. My, my attention is not the same as it used to be. So we've written about this, that attention is the gatekeeper of consciousness. And if your attention is affected, everything behind that is affected disproportionately. You can't memorize if you can't attend to something. You can't do executive function if you can't attend to things. So one of the things that we see is attention is getting worse. Now, for people who had attention difficulties at the beginning of life, that becomes even more problematic. But it's actually something that happens for everybody significantly starting in our 20s. And fortuitously, it's one of the things that we can affect the most as well. And and how we change that relationship with focus is an everyday process, every minute process, which we have put into little buckets, as in we are going to go take five minutes and meditate and it's gonna be, that's great. We're, we both meditate, we mindful breathing, all that. But focus and focus development is a all day of, of, of endeavor 
that if you take it on, you significantly, not just decline, but, and this is research that shows us, you continually increase your cognitive capacity. Because in our Western world, we, we're, what happens? We're overwhelmed. Everybody's multitasking. One of the things we say is there's no such thing as multitasking. It's called, it's doing multiple things badly. You can do multiple things, do them in their own silo from beginning to the end. And that does so many things that checks off the dopamine surge. It does all of that stuff, but it doesn't happen like that. We do multiple things and it accumulates and accumulates along with that. The parts of the brain that are dedicated to focus are affected as we get older. So it's then the storm comes up where the, that part of the brain is affected and your life is overwhelmed and your focus is getting more and more affected. Uh, so that's the thing that I would actually focus everybody in their twenties. Mm-hmm. I would say that was focus I, I on focus. Tech, I love focus, it. Focus on focus. focus on- but so it's critical to start actually acknowledging that's an important thing right. that we have to build, especially in our lives <clears throat> where everybody is distracted <laughs> and we are living. It's like the information highway. You just feel like you're in a deluge where you're being hit with conversations, thoughts, ideas, items, advertisements over and over again. And so it's very easy to lose yourselves and lose focus and be sharp and continue to maintain and absorb information relevant to your life. So focus in your 20s. What about let's move on to 30s? Okay. Yeah. Again, focus throughout life. Okay. And we'll talk about how you can build that focus on a daily. We, I, we talked something about the meditation of dishwashing. It's, it sounds so banal. And, I don't and, think people will be excited about that. I, I love it. I love, you know, the flow, the washing. But it's about the thing in front of you. It's the, the Japanese tea ceremony. It's not about tea or the pot. It's about the act of going through that in detail, in focus, in meditative state. It has nothing to do with that thing. It has to do with your living with that thing, with focus in mind. Or for, for example, <clears throat> there is a monastery in Thailand where all you do to focus and to meditate is make bread. So they have an enormous kitchen and I would love to go there. They have an enormous kitchen where people just stand there and make bread and they focus on that act of bread making and they're told not to think about anything else. Just be with those ingredients and the manipulation of those ingredients into bread. And I think that's a great example of maintaining focus and attending to one thing at a time. And just to, so that people realize that we're scientists, we, this is not soft stuff. It's about bringing science to real life, absolutely, to everyday life. You don't have to go to a clinic to get a pill in a bar and there's a study then, you know, double-blinded. We know what works. We know what works. So focus is the main thing. Then the other elements are memory. So memory, the way what we have for memory is, or memory or executive function is Sudoku and crossword crossword puzzles puzzles or word games. Those are great. Those are fine. Sudoku gives me seizures, but uh, that's, uh, yeah, I hate Sudoku. (laughs) But but it's about doing complex behaviors, again, with focus, with intent. When you're playing guitar, uh, we have some guitar, and and Aisha is an amazing singer, as everybody knows in the audience. I'm the least talented one of the family. Uh, Actually, I have no talent. But she is an amazing singer and, and... and I play, I've played guitar for 30 years and I'm terrible at it, but that is something. But, but yet you still play. What do you? I, I still play. <laughs> well, whatever, you, you might call it play, but it's, it's something else. Um, so I'm, when you're playing guitar, especially from notes, 
you're looking at the notes, that's your left parietal lobe, your language centers. You're processing it visually, your occipital lobe. You're processing it with your mind, that's your frontal lobe. You're being creative, it's your right parietal lobe. You're emotionally involved, it's your limbic system. You are dexterous with your fingers, and that's your cerebellum and your motor cortex. That's no Sudoku. That's your entire brain being brought. So when you're talking about building brain, uh, building memory, building executive function, which is processing you know, and problem solving, it should be about more complex things that you enjoy. We did a meta-analysis on executive function, sorry, MCI, which is cognitive decline, and kind of activities that work the most. And it was a massive uh, meta-analysis, which is the hardest uh, research I've done in a while. We were at Cedars at the time. It was published in 2018. What, I, what came out of that was three things that can build brain at any age. Complexity, challenge, and the third one will surprise you, or I guess maybe it won't, purpose. When, it, when an activity is around your purpose, and we can define that, purpose doesn't have to be something as, as grand as I'm gonna save the rainforest, which would be great, let's do that. But it, it, your purpose could be something as simple as learning guitar. Forget about that. Learning highway, a particular song. Yeah. yeah. What's the one we were learning the, this week? The, oh, well, there are several that we're yeah. working on, but a yeah. couple of Elvis songs. Elvis. Oh, exactly. We so, might have to close with Elvis. Can we close with Elvis <laughs> at the end of this? You're going to lose the entire audience. But the, the point is, it's about purpose. Complexity means activities that are multi-domain. Real life activities. Managing a team, book clubs card games, learning to dance, music, uh, taking classes as a senior or at any age. The thing that stands out over and over again that protects the brain, in fact, in every study we, we actually control for this, is education. Education is stupid. It's, we use it because it's easy. Oh, four <laughs> years of college, four years of postgrad, that's easy to measure. No, it's how complex your life has been. Yeah. The thing that protects your brain the most and here's from two neurologists, nutritionists. It's gonna, it's nutrition is extremely important, but it's what's even more important is complexity of purpose. And here's a, we say that we're gonna name our group this idea density. Our band. Our band. If we had a band, the, the name of our band would be idea density. Idea density protects your brain the <laughs> most. So challenge yourself around your purpose and you'll take care of memory at 30, focus in your 20s, and then executive function and growth of the brain well in your 40s, 50s, and beyond. Well, all the entrepreneurs listening are going to be very happy because I can speak from experience. I have complexity of purpose. Colleen and I joke sometimes, we're like, we're, we have too much purpose sometimes. All the purpose is, stre <laughs> is stressing us out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good yeah. for our yeah. brain, I guess. Oh, uh, good stress. So... I am curious, what's, what are we getting wrong? When you talk about multitasking, I immediately think of my phone and I'm on any technology. And for example, lots of excitement around the Clubhouse app. And I'm like, oh, great, like another social network. I need to have a presence on another thing that's like yeah, <laughs> ringing. It's, yeah. I'm just like, there, there's, there's so much. And so is it social media? Is it uh, SSRIs? Is it nutrition? Like, how do you think about like, if you like, what if you could break up like is it 25% nutrition is it 20% technology is it 30% purpose is it and with you can't talk about in the context of covid you have to talk about loneliness how does the the pie slice in your opinion and what's driving 
this. It's an epidemic, the epidemic of declining brain function. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly say my yeah. little two cents. It's, I think the biggest factor, they're all important. You can't do one without the other. My, we lost two grandparents each to Alzheimer's. There were brilliant people. Our two grandparents, uh, both each, uh, were brilliant people. So they had the cognitive component. They were physically, sorry, mentally active. They were read all the time. And, but they succumbed because nutrition, in their case, was terrible. I mean, my, my grandfather, a brilliant man, would dip cake in Coke all day. I mean, diabetes, uh, hypertension, It doesn't even taste good. At least make it uh, taste good if you're going to go there. I know, oh. I know. People and their, their idiosyncrasies, yeah. So that's their people's different. But the biggest thing for me is purposeful connection. When you're connected, that involves your mental activity. When you're connected, you're, that involves your purpose. That when you're connected, that's your, you, you know this better than that, your emotional state. When you're happy, you're healthier. When you're happy, uh, you're, you, have, you can actually live to a higher purpose. When you're sad, you go down to the survival limbic brain, which is a unhealthy brain. When people think that they, we should look at evolution as our model, no, evolution didn't care about you living past 30. Actually, not even 30. As soon as you reproduce, you could die. You know, it, so it's about that connectivity and purpose, which to me is central to health and mental health. Yeah. I would, I would agree. I would agree with that. And I, I think as individuals who have taken on the responsibility to take the mantle of a healthcare provider or someone who is willing to disperse this message of hope and empowerment, like you're doing, Jason, like what MBG is doing, like, like what we're doing. I mean, when training in medical school, I never thought that I would be standing in my pantry and talking to the audience about lentils. So you, you take this responsibility and it's, I think it's because you really want to inform people that they have to take control of their health and they have to start thinking about what is, what works for them. I mean, the, it, it, it's not, and it's not a cookie cutter information and it's very difficult to answer the question that you initially asked about the percentages of what's wrong because it could be different for different people. But it's that connection and highlighting the importance of finding one's purpose because everything else will fall in place. That, that's mm -hmm. fair. And I do want to spend a moment on IRL meaningful connection. I am an optimist, but that also has me quite concerned because without question, there's a loneliness epidemic. And we know that loneliness is equated, I, I read a statistic recently, loneliness was equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That, that's just, whoa, just stop there. That, that, I think that came from someone, it was a big healthcare organization, like this is <laughs> a, a, yeah. re, a real data point. And there's, and we also know loneliness isn't good for immune system. And then coming out of COVID, look, it, it's, We've had to quarantine, we've had to distance, we're hopefully coming out of it, but I'm concerned coming out of this for a lot of people, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. And it is just so clear that in real life connection that's meaningful is just paramount to our health and well-being. And so how do you guys think about that? Are you as worried? Am I just over-concerned about this one? No, it really is a major issue. It is. We think that so we, we talk about suicide, substance abuse. These are some of the things that stand out and, and the statistics are pretty pretty scary. We talked about our my patients, Alzheimer's patients, the population that was hit the hardest 
was patients who had Alzheimer's in nursing homes. It was a perfect storm that just slammed into this population and just demolished them for multiple reasons. The highest mortality rate. And even outside of that population that's vulnerable, we as humans are social beings and connected beings. And sometimes technology doesn't help because there could be a lot of noise, but you're in the middle of all that noise, you're alone. Because if it's not true human connection, it's just people throwing words at each other and making each other feel more insecure with social media. Everybody's better looking than you. Everybody's best, uh, doing better than you. Everybody's smarter than you. Every, nobody knows that everybody's having struggles. So throwing noise at each other is, is not an answer to uh, loneliness. True connecting, true vulnerability. So I think one of the, I'm, I'm on the little bit of other side. I agree with you with the, with the danger of it, absolutely. The other side of it that I see is always, how could this thing that we have in front of us could be helpful? I really think that we are always in the myopic moment. And because we're survival beings, you remember that our entire autonomic system is based on fear, sadly. We're not, that's a whole different conversation as I'm writing about the foundations of human behavior. And it's so we. the first thing we do is find the thing that's gonna kill me, of course. Even if we don't find it, the, the search is anxiety driven, right? But to look a little beyond that, I think what this epidemic did was killed a lot of people. We saw it in the hospital. So we want to say we know what it did to the society in general. But the, some of the things that came out of it was we saw our patients connect to their families for the first time through Zoom, through Skype, through computers, through phones. People became aware of what they should be aware of. Oh, wait a second. More important than me doing the cursory Christmas trip, I can actually connect to uh, my grandmother on the phone, on, the, on Skype, on Zoom, and connecting each other. And I think that one positive thing I see coming out of the interface of technology and our stressful times, which humanity's gone through many of these, is, oh, okay, so what do we need? We need good food, we need movement, we need good sleep, we need stress management, but more importantly, we need meaningful connections. Okay, so given the stress, with technology, we can actually improve on meaningful connections. And I think that's something that came out of it, not universally, not ubiquitously, but it's conversations that have started. And in that, there's a lot of noise. In all creativity, majority of his noise, the 10% that comes up to the surface is meaning. And I'm very optimistic that's what's gonna come out of all this. Amen, I love it, all right. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to you, you talk about food. You have this great section in the book. Uh, you call it the Neuro Plan, and Neuro stands for Nutrition, Exercise, Unwind, Restore, and Optimize. So I'm gonna pick a couple of my favorites, and uh, and go from there. So in nutrition, you guys love walnuts. I love walnuts. So what makes walnuts so special with regards to our brain? Walnuts are an incredible nut because. Well, first of all, they're absolutely delicious and they look like the brain, which is amazing. Yes. But more important than that is there is such an amazing source of polyunsaturated fats, which are incredibly important for brain health and for the integrity of brain cells, for the integrity of the millions and millions of branches of these amazing little arteries that supply oxygen and nutrition to different parts of our brain. So it has fiber, it has minerals like selenium, magnesium, potassium, and it's, it's all 
compacted as a gift in this beautiful little nut. And walnuts are one of the nuts that actually has been studied as well. There are some studies that have shown that people who consume walnuts on a regular basis have better brain health in terms of lower risk of dementia. But, you know, more important than just numbers, I think the fact that it's easily available, the fact that it actually can yeah. go on your greens and it can make desserts with it, <laughs> healthy desserts, you can eat it as a snack, makes it such a wonderful and uh, uh, a helpful snack to have around. One of my favorite desserts ever, and, and we do have desserts, we're a healthy family, but you can have healthy, <laughs> was a uh, key lime pie. That's right. Which yeah. is, the crust is made out of walnuts. Walnuts and yeah. yeah. Uh, we, it's we absolutely it. amazing. So yeah. the key there is omega, one of the main, multiple benefits, omega three to omega six ratio. Right. And it's of the nuts, that's one of the highest ones. Yeah. And so I'll move on to exercise and high intensity interval training, also walking. What's, can you talk about what's best in terms of exercise? Lots of opinions and what I'm excited about, and you guys seem to be on the same page, is less is more. Yes, yes. So to know that is to know what the brain is like. If you hold a brain in your hand, it's a gelatinous organ. It's a hard jello. You can actually move it and you see it shake. Not as, as much as jello, but it shakes. And it's in a bony case, sharp bony case. It has sharp little places, especially in the temporal lobe where the memory is. And the fluid surrounding it is not viscous. It's like water. So there's not much cushioning, um, as much as water can cushion. Whereas in a, our kids did a, a program on woodpeckers, their CSF, cerebral spinal fluid is gelatinous and their tongue muscle goes around the brain covering it. I'm like, that's just crazy. why didn't we get that? <laughs> we had it. Yeah, that's traumatic brain injury, that, right? That, yeah. Maybe it, they should be wild. playing football. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So, so, wow. so our brains are quite tenuous and we're magical thinkers. They say, oh, we're going to be fine. We've lived with this brain for, no, I mean, if, Everything around you is for a person living to 30 and not even that, that well, just surviving enough to reproduce. Remember, that's how evolution works. So if you want to thrive, you got to hack it. And I hate the word biohacking and all that, but you have to do something extra. Right. You have to get more omega-3s in your system. That We, we did a paper, two papers right now that's being published, one on developing brain and omega-3 supplementation and the other one on aging brain and omega-3 supplementation. Huge, huge reviews. Uh, but so you have to do some extra things. Exercise is critical. It's blood supply. It's uh, uh, hormones like BDNF that grows the brain. It's connectivity. It's actually telling the brain that it's actually moving. So it's moving towards a purpose. Actually, there's a whole psychology behind that. But the kind of movement is important. If it's traumatic movement, let's say football or other things, it's going to damage it and you will see the consequences. There's no magic about it. We love brisk walks. Brisk walks or swimming or those kind of activities where you're not traumatizing, but you're getting the aerobic exercise. You're moving all the extremities, bicycling. These are wonderful exercises that, that there's no trauma. There's no rapid movement up and down. I'm, I hope the runners don't get angry at me. I think the runners are healthier than any uh, American out there or, yeah. or anybody else. Like our friend Rich. Yeah, Rich, we won't tell amazing. Rich. We won't tell Rich. 
No, no, no. He, he will live to 200. He, he's doing I think he so will. much more yeah. for that beautiful brain of his. Yeah. So. <laughs> he's going to live to 200. But if you're not doing it right, if you're not hydrating, if you're not, right. then it's going to damage. So it's important to talk about that. But walking fast, bicycling, swimming, but even running well without too much impact, right. yeah. those are amazing because of multiple reasons. They get the blood supply. We have 400 miles of blood supply in the brain. It's the most vascular organ. It's the most vascular organ. As we get older, you want to get more blood to it for multiple reasons. And BDNF, which is the ultimate growth hormone, a brain drive, is created more when you exercise. Now, of the exercises, for the, not, for the aerobic one, it's those things. But for anaerobic one, it was surprising. Leg strength is by far the most important. It's almost like bigger legs, bigger brain. Yes. Literally. I mean, when you grow uh, leg muscles, there have been studies that show that the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that is responsible for encoding memory, actually grows. And it makes sense. Bigger muscles, more BDNF, more connections between the brain cells in the hippocampus. So I am a stairs guy. So how many stairs and how fast do I need to go? Uh, are you natural stairs or the machine? Oh, natural. I don't like machines. Okay. So the, with the, the natural one, the one thing you have to be very careful with is going down the stairs. You've heard this. You've read this. I don't want to fall. That there's a, you're not just falling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, number one, yeah. The other thing is because the, there's more damage to the menisci and the yeah. ligaments going down, be careful, use those wraps, don't be magical, some of those, the, it, it will cover. But stairs are amazing. They're absolutely amazing because they do all of the things that we said. They strengthen delays, there's aerobic component to it. I, to be honest, I think my the, one of the healthiest exercises that I can think of is stairs. Yeah, and I, I think there's no, there's some formulas where you you can actually calculate to see how much your heart rate goes up. But I think roughly for day-to-day -day life, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I got my I aura, my whoop, my Fitbit, I track it all. Amazing. Yeah. But you know, for a low-tech way of doing it is as, as soon as you feel that you have difficulty finishing a sentence and you're panting and you break a sweat, I think that's a great place to be. And that's a great place where your BDNFs are flushing your body. Yeah, got it. On the flip side, what about unwind and restore oh goodness yeah, yeah. we need a lot of that don't we yeah. um, yes unwind so unwind is essentially the way we define it is not just getting rid of stress because stress has a very negative connotation in our lifestyle in our communities but there is such a thing as good stress and when we talk about optimization of brain health it essentially focuses on developing more opportunities to increase your good stress. And good stress are the types of stresses and activities that are under our control, like taking a class, playing a musical instrument, learning a new language, taking on a project, what you're doing, Jason, yeah. that's good stress. Speaking I hope so. on, on yes. a podcast is good stress. <laughs> yeah. And the more you do that, the more your brain allows itself to connect, the brain cells to connect with each other. And that's why education is used as a proxy for cognitive reserve, but we develop cognitive reserve when we put ourselves in those good stressful conditions. 
But those situations have an end, they have an outcome, they're connected with our purpose, and they are something that is manageable. On the other hand, things that are not manageable, things that are imposed on us, whether it's sadness or some problems with our lives, relationships, problems with our jobs, those are bad stresses. And reducing them to a greater extent should be the goal. And I I think there's no good answer for it. It it varies for different people. But I think... It starts with perception, knowing the difference between the good stresses and the bad stresses and identifying those bad stresses very clearly. I fully agree. So we have wall white whiteboards everywhere and our dining room is basically why all the walls are whiteboarded. So we write because the kids go there and write the stressors. It's critical to define the stresses specifically. Doing a lot of things is not bad. I mean, what's the name? The CEO of Virgin. Branson? Branson. Richard Branson. He's got 300 companies, but he's one of the happiest people because one of the, I heard one of his conversations, it's breaking each activity into their own silos and each act within the same, uh, within from beginning to the end. That act of knowing what the beginning and the end of the particular day's activity is and checking it off is incredible for the brain. From uh, dopamine release, your joy, your sense of happiness, over time, even your depression scale, all of that's going to be affected by those checkoffs. We, that's the mechanism the brain has given you. So it's critical to define your good stresses specifically and measurably and the bad stresses specifically and measurably. Mm-hmm. And then reduce, eliminate, and delegate the bad stressors over time. Yeah. Increase, empower, and tool the good stresses over time. And in fact, to us, that becomes central. Yeah. That's the good stress. Why is that important? So your brain is three pounds. That's 2% of your body's weight. And it consumes 25% of your energy. Why? At times, 50% of your blood supply is usurped for the brain. Why? Because it wants one thing and one thing only, information. So as you get older, if you don't give it information, all this energy, the brain evolutionary says, oh, I don't need it. It actually withdraws and the shrinking becomes rapid. So it becomes exponentially more important to challenge the brain around your purpose as you get older and older. We say, don't retire, rewire, reconnect. Now, when you do that, when you do that around purposes and meaning, the connections are exponential. Each of the 87 billion neurons can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections at any age. Mm -hmm. Let me just repeat that. So that's the power we have. No, no gimmicks, no late night, you know, jellyfish pills, none of that. Challenge yourself. <laughs> and I don't know what pills you're home. taking at night, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I'm not taking any late night jellyfish what pills. Have you been watching? Not those blue I want to party with the shares eyes. Late night jellyfish no, no, pills. No, no. Jelly, no, jellyfish. Um, the infomercials. The infomercials. Yeah, yeah. Look at me. Protecting me. No, but it's those memory pills that they sell on yeah. late sure. night. Yeah. If, if, imagine this. The 30,000 connections per neuron. That's infinite protection. So where you're going, I think, is around optimization. And you talk about sirtuins in the book. And just can you give a primer on sirtuins and how they relate to optimization for those who just feel pretty good, but, you know, some of our listeners just want to optimize? Yeah, so optimize with regards to... so. I think it's important to understand that these incredible processes that happen in our body and in our minds, where at the cellular and at the genetic level, 
you are constantly modifying the relationship between the cellular, the intracellular and the extracellular environment with your genes, it happens because you have given those raw materials to them and that is connected with what you do. So the things you eat, the way you move, the way you choose to converse, the kind of people that you surround yourself, they do affect you at that cellular and the molecular level. And I think all of us are trying to understand the applicability of those of those lifestyle measures in our day-to-day -day life. Optimization or increasing our cognitive reserve or making sure that we give our environment, our brain environment, an opportunity to grow and thrive is related to the kind of thought processes, the kind of activities that we do. And yeah, whether it's the sirtuins affecting our DNA levels, whether it's the genetic material maintaining itself and how that affects the brain connectivity and the vascular integrity, all of that happens with the kind of activities that we choose every day. Uh, one of the processes that we talk about is the limbic hypothalamic pituitary axis. That's something that not many people talk about, but it's it, it, there, it's perfect science on it. I mean, it's, it's already well known. The reason we don't talk about it is because we think we have no effect on it. So when you're, the emotions that come out of your limbic system and also is interpreted by your frontal lobe, that emotion that's interpreted, which is the language you have, affects your hypothalamus differently. If it's bad stress, bad stuff, it affects your hypothalamus differently. Different chemicals released, different messengers released to the pituitary. Now, pituitary is the hormone central. Growth hormones, sex hormones, thyroid hormone, cortisol, everything is controlled there. So your immune system is going to be affected from moment to moment. Your growth hormone, your everything is affected from moment to moment based on how you feel that very moment. So we focus on other things like food, which is important, again, very important. But on our emotions, we don't, which we should be doing. One of the things we do in the book and in the communities is giving people control over moment-to-moment -moment emotional management. Because if you do that, you've already increased your good hormones. The reason that people who are stressed chronically have higher cancer levels is because of this pathway. Your cortisol level, your pituitary system lowers your immune system, which means you will have greater cancers. They have, you have greater heart disease and shrunken brains. They all work together and then, then they go and work at the molecular level. One of the things that we kind of focus on, and it's a little complex because people want the simple answers, but it's that if you bring it to your homes and take one small step at a time, you will have changed your life more than you can ever imagine. We hate the word 30 days because the name of the book is 30 days. I know it was- <laughs> Yeah, it was a little uncomfortable. Well, sorry, we were, but we, we understand we were, that if you do one day at a time, by 30th day, you will have completely changed your life. There's a paradigm, uh, there's a story where there's a king and a poet, and the poet says, for every poem that I write, give me one grain of, of, of wheat per month, uh, per day in a month. And by the 30th day, he had basically accumulated all the grain in the kingdom. And if you do the math, it's like that. Slow incremental increases in all these behaviors uh, are incredibly powerful. I love it. So 
In closing, in addition to everyone, everyone listening, picking up the book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, which I suggest everyone does, what is your hope with this book, with your mission in 2021? What, where do you want people, where do you want the conversation around brain health to go in this coming year? What is your hope? Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. I think the message that is in this book and the message that we've been constantly trying to voice out in multiple ways, whether it's in the clinic or in our community or for our research participants is that they should take care of their own brain health and not expect to find it in a clinic or in a, a, in a hospital or even in a small setting. That brain health should be a part and parcel of each and every moment of their life. And they don't really necessarily need to invest too much into it. It's understanding what works for them based on scientific evidence, based on research and applying. And that's why we created our non-for-profit, the Healthy Minds Initiative, and all of the profits of the book go towards that because we want to propagate this message of hope and empowerment. People don't need to suffer from Alzheimer's. People don't need to suffer from stroke, that we can all live a very cognitively vibrant life if we make those small changes on a daily basis. I love it. We'll close there. Thank you so much. The most love, one of the most lovely couples in, in all of wellness, the Shares Eyes. Congrats on the book. Uh -oh. Everyone go pick it up. Thank you for all that you uh -oh. do. Thank you, Jason. Thank we you love so you much. and we Colleen you. and the kids and hope to connect again soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Be well. Take care of yourself.